Welcome to Compassionate Conversations, a podcast produced by the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Naomi Rosin Kani discussing subjects related to mental health and mental illness. My name is Carlos Freck. I am the Communications and Advocacy Manager at Naomi Rosin Kani and your host today. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And during this month, people across the United States raise awareness about sexual violence, how to prevent it, and how to support those who are affected by it. On today's episode, we are having a conversation with Maria Bishop and Scott Kinderman about the trauma of sexual assault, the recovery process, healthy coping mechanisms, and how to support the survivors of sexual assault. Please be aware that this episode might trigger trauma in some listeners. If you feel uncomfortable or triggered, please stop listening and take a break. Come back when you can. Remember, there is help available 24-7 by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 4673. Maria, Scott, welcome to Compassionate Conversations. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Well, before we start our conversation, uh, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Maria, could we start with you? Yeah, thank you, Carlos. I just want to thank you and Nami for shedding light on this very um, tender subject with April coming up. Um, I really much appreciate that. I am a licensed professional counselor. I have advanced training in trauma-related issues with a specialty in sexual abuse. I have the integration of mind and body in my practice, and I also bring art and play therapies in, and I um, have a specialty with adolescent development. With advanced training in EMDR, which is a trauma-informed type of um, uh, work that I do with the clients, as well as Hatha Yoga certified. And I work with women, couples, families, and adolescents are my key target. I have a nonprofit that works with survivors of sexual abuse using the arts to empower and heal, and that is called Breath of Courage. Wow, that's quite an impressive curriculum. Busy girl. I love it. Thank you, Maria. How about you, Scott? How are you doing? Good, thank you. Um, my name is Scott Kinderman. I am a volunteer advocate uh, with Belief Survivors Overseen. Formerly, we were known as Sexual Assault Services Overseen. Um, with the work that I did with them, I chose to take an extra step, and I am now on the board of Belief Survivors. And I'm a survivor of childhood sexual molestation. Um, I'm here, and I, again, thank you very much, Carlos, for the support uh, that NAMI is providing in sexual assault awareness and sexual abuse and molestation. Um, I feel I've come far enough in my journey in healing that I now wish to be here to advocate for others who have experienced sexual assault. Thank you, Scott, and again, welcome both of you. Um, and I would like to remind our audience that this could be a triggering conversation. So if you feel triggered, if you feel anxious, please stop listening, take some time, and come back whenever you are able. Maria, before we go farther into the conversation, can we define what is sexual assault? Because according to the American Psychological Association, sexual abuse is the violation or exploitation by sexual means. Although the term is typically used with reference to any sexual contact between adults and children, sexual abuse can also occur in any relationship of trust. Yeah, it's a, it's a definitive 
um, definition in the way that, yes, it can occur in any relationship of trust. But let's take a look at some of the myths that they think it's not, um, I'm sorry, of what it is. So a myth is that if you were not physically forced, one can think that that that's not sexual abuse. However, that's a myth. There's manipulation involved with this, threats. Um, often a perpetrator will seek very vulnerable subjects and there can be coercion. That alone, without any kind of physical touch, can be considered sexual abuse. Um, the other one, another one, is if you weren't touched, like I just said. So in this case, the perpetrator can force you to touch, to look, or to perform any types of acts with them, on them, or for other people. Again, these acts of threats um, definitely land in that category of sexual abuse. And if it only happened one time, I've gotten that one quite a bit in therapy. And again, this is so different for everybody that they'll come in thinking that, how come I'm feeling so incredibly disjointed and disconnected and it only happened once? Mm. It doesn't matter if it happened one time or if it's happened 10 times or if it happens 100 times. One time is enough and it never should happen and it's sexual right. abuse. So, and then if it was someone that you loved or you love, it can mm -hmm. be a partner. It can be someone really close within your family. The thing is that no one has a right to hurt anyone else, but that sense of shame is so incredibly deep mm -hmm. with that person mm -hmm. that they feel that they can't say anything at that point. Or the fact is that I love this person. This is my partner, or this is a family member. So as we talk about this and try to unwrap what it is, it's really important to take a look at that definition very closely and uncover those myths that are around all of that. Mm -hmm. So people do understand that those types of things do qualify as sexual abuse. And I know that Scott is going to talk about some consent and consent mm -hmm. is, is a very key aspect to what sexual abuse and assault is and is not. Um. And it's more, oh, thank you, thank you, Maria. Um, consent is very, very crucial in understanding any definition of sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual or molestation. Um, at its most basic, sex without consent is sexual assault. And mm. you, you, that, that you can't go more basic than that. Um, However, in some of the definitions and understanding consent, you know, consent needs to be given freely, uh, no coercion, no, no threats. And the person giving consent must understand that to what they're agreeing to. And a key thing is particularly in, you know, adult situations, because a lot of times kids don't understand, you know, um, the concept of, I can actually say no. Right. Um, but, it, you know, in adult relationships or adolescent relationships, consent can be withdrawn. You can give right. consent. And then if you're not comfortable, you can withdraw consent. And that that needs to be understood that just because you said yes 10 minutes ago does not mean yes now. Right. Um, and the consent, it needs to be clear. And I love the word I found on this. Enthusiastic. Meaning that I am whole, I am agreeing to this. It's not, yeah, yeah, no, it's yes. Right. You know, there's power to it. And also it's key to know that the absence of a no does not mean yes. yes. 
and, you know, if you're not familiar for speaking up for yourself or um, being able, you know, have, you know, the, to say, hey, I'm or used to saying no, then and you kind of just clam up, you did not say yes. Um, and also it's good to know past consent does not mean future consent. Right. There may have been something you were okay with trying, you know, in a relationship, I want to try this. Right. Whereas, okay, I didn't care for it going forward. No, I do not wish to do this. And then a big thing too is to understand, because I know a lot of times there's drug and alcohol uh, that come into situations. If they're involved, uh, a clear consent is not possible. Right. Because you it's impaired. Yeah. Of, uh, they, you, can, you know, a person who's intoxicated or impaired cannot give consent. You know, um, we can, there's, you can have a whole topic on that. But, you know, it's a very, um, it, basically, in essence, at each step of the process, consent should be given. You know, if it's a relationship, there. The unfortunate, when it's an abuse situation, is for children. A lot of times they don't have that capability. But, you know, that is something that, um, and that's where then therapy and stuff comes in when, you know, we discover it. Sure. And this is difficult for a child, yes. right? Because a child often doesn't have the verbiage to say this. And this is where coercion and manipulation and being, you know, the grooming can begin to happen. Now, when we're talking adults, even that can be difficult because we can often go into these intimate relationships very non-verbally or under the influence, like you were saying, perhaps there's yeah. some drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. But this really does take that to the level where an individual needs to say right. where they're at. And right? let's, let's face it, it is human nature to wish to please somebody. Sure. And a child wishes to please their parent. They're not, you know, and or even in a new relationship, you wish to please your partner. And consent is still very important. Yeah. There are significant psychological consequences for survivors of sexual assault. Among them, PTSD, depression, and suicidal ideation. This is why it's so important to remember that if you are a survivor or have been indirectly affected by sexual violence, you are not alone. Scott, you are a survivor. Yes. But you have found healing, and in that process, you have become an advocate. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your personal experience? Okay. Uh, yes. Um, my experiences occurred when I was uh, between the ages 11 and 12, um, I was molested by two of my mother's boyfriends um, about a year apart. Uh, one of them liked me very much to touch him um, and presented multiple opportunities to do so. Um, and then another of her boyfriends liked to take pictures of me Think bear skin, you know, kid on a bear skin route type thing. Um, and that's, those are, you know, that's probably the basic, just, you know, idea of what occurred. Um, the trauma, really, I think in some of the trauma for me began in more in earnest when, I mean, one of them even, one of the boyfriends confessed to my mother and I can't figure out why to this day, but he did confess. And shortly afterwards, she came to me and said, well, I have forgiven him. You have to as well. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, 
is what did more damage um, than the actual events because it became the person who was supposed to be my advocate. Right. Yeah. Was not. So. So I did listen to your episode uh, for Candon's uh, Sanchez's podcast, and we're leaving the link to that episode in the description of this episode so that our listeners can go and listen to the whole experience. I highly recommend it. It's about an hour, and it goes in depth into the whole experience and the process. But that last part that you just mentioned about your mother um, forgiving your abuser and then sort of demanding, asking you to do the same. How did that affect you? Um, how did you react to that? Um, I buried it. And that actually, it never got spoken to, to anybody, no police, no parents. I can look back and actually believe that I think it was more fear on her part than anything. Parents are divorced, you know. Um, and the, however, it in burying it, that doesn't stay buried. It comes to the surface, it affects your life in ways you just don't think. Yeah. There are times, I call it the wall. Time and time again in my life, I hit where I thought things were going good. Mm. And I always felt I, had, I was gaining power back in my life. And then there'd be an event and all that power slips away. And I just hit this wall. I would start so many things in my life knowing with the expectation of not completing them or expectation of failure. And you just, it, it becomes your learned behavior. I'm not worthy of success. Mm. Yeah, the consequences that, of something that was never dealt with. Correct. It just manifests in different forms in yes. your life. Yes. It doesn't stay buried. It just, it comes out in different ways. Sure. There's a sense of badness that's inside that this child has to carry around. Yes. And it gets projected out in, in different ways and forms. You know, when, when the person, like you said, was supposed to protect you, to mm -hmm. be there, to provide you safety, yep. right? You're a vulnerable child. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I, I believe it's important that we understand that if we don't process these experiences, uh, they will come back and they will transform, but they will stay with us and will come back and manifest in a different way. Now, uh, the experience of sexual assault is different for each person, but some signs uh, can be indicative that a child has been groomed or that has experienced sexual assault. Maria, let's talk about these signs. Uh, what should we be aware of, especially when it comes down to minors? Sure. And I'm going to back up a little bit because some of those signs that come out are very indicative of what is happening in a child's development within their brain when this is happening. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about the prefrontal cortex, that's the area that's just behind our forehead. Okay. And this is associated with the relationship between brain structure and different areas of development that help children think, feel, and act. So okay. this particular area, there's a sequence of a development that happens over time and it goes on through adolescence. Mm -hmm. So we go from concrete thinking into more critical thinking and analytical thinking when kids start to get to be preteen. Now, if there's some kind of psychological trauma within the home, as like what Scott had gone through, this is going to add some issue to that development. To the process. Right, exactly. And so some of the things that go on, and I'll go through them a little slowly, because I think it's really important for people to know. I do a lot of education on the neurobiological, 
end of what is happening within the brain. It helps a lot. So this, this executive functioning, I always used to tell parents and, and my kids when I'm working with them, that's under construction until about 25, right? Those neural pathways are moving and growing. If you don't use it, you lose it is another right, good term, right? right? You got to, those things get pruned out if you're not constantly using certain neural pathways. But these executive functions work dynamically together in various ways. So mm -hmm. there's activation, organizing, prioritizing how you work, focus, being able to sustain and shift your attention from task to task, regulating alertness, processing speed. We call that effort, mm -hmm. okay? Emotion, this is huge. This is managing frustration and modulating emotion. It's very big and that takes um, place up in that prefrontal cortex. Our memory, utilizing working memory, accessing recall. A good example of that is math. As you learn your way right. from, you know, when you're in calculus and then you move right. up to all the different levels of math. So we need to have that working memory. And then action, being able to monitor and self-regulate yourself. These are all moving and growing. And when we've got psychological trauma and within the home, as we're talking about here, any one of these can start to be under attack and they can find themselves that they're going to be with arrested development. A child's not paying attention within school. They're having a very difficult time with focus and attention. So within this, as we see this under development within the executive functioning skills, then we start to see things that look like anxiety in a child. They're social inhibit and inhibited with their friends. They might be acting out in school. They might be depressed. They might not be able to be assertive enough. They're coming out more aggressive. And so be it that that prefrontal cortex is not getting the attention it needs because they're in this place of fight, flight, freeze. That's a completely different part of the brain. They're back in right. that limbic brain. Can yeah. I also add Absolutely. fawn too? And so fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Because my experience was very much in the fawn realm. Because if I didn't answer my mother appropriately for do you love me, there mm. was, it, it became a very difficult situation. So I just, mm. that was. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this, this is where these self-protective skills start to get. Um, developed like with Scott here he's 12 years old he's just at that crutch of right adolescence and stepping into that so he's just coming out of magical thinking concrete thinking which is a, is a young child and we want that I mean it's really important for kids to be able to have magical thinking it, it's what makes them spontaneous and interested in the world and curious um, and so when that gets cut off at a young age, there's a whole nother level of where they pull in and they're not going to be available to be spontaneous because it's frightening for them. For Scott, he's moving into this place of higher level of critical thinking at this point. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult because to able to do that, you have to have that executive functioning within those areas operating clearly. But instead, when we're in fight, flight, freeze, fawn, we're in the limbic brain and we're in safety mode and it's right. constant. And so there's where we see this beginning of um, not being able to be in places where it would make sense for a teenager to be. Mm. Then we get into our young adult and then we begin to see that these things get laid down. I like to say it's like the old truck that's going to the farmhouse that doesn't have a paved driveway but they have the tracks, right? So it's in the mud, but they got those tracks laid down. And when you ask somebody to try to get off that groove, 
and move over, it's going to be very uncomfortable for them. And usually what they'll do is they'll want to come back to those tracks where it's right. comfortable, right? It's safe. To the safe. Yeah. Exactly, Scott. Mm -hmm. So basically you are constantly in some kind of uh, safety mode, right? Because um, you're trying to place yourself in situations and place yourself in, you know, control the things around you so that you can feel safe. Um, all the energy in the developmental process goes into making sure that you are safe and that your surroundings are, are safe. Is, is that a correct? Um... Yeah, yeah. And it can come out very dysfunctional, Carlos. So it can be that when we're working with boundaries, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. The you know, those who've been a victim of sexual abuse don't know what healthy boundaries are. So they can find themselves often repeating the situation. Maybe it's not putting themselves again in place of sexual abuse once they're a little bit older, but within very chaotic, dysfunctional relationships. Sometimes thinking that they're going to try to fix it because they can get into that. And if they can just figure that out, other times it's because they're comfortable with the chaos. It's what they know. Right. You know, but is it a safety feature? They're coming out of that in many different ways and forms mm -hmm. to, to try to, pre to prevent being hurt again or right. being put in an invulnerable position, sometimes only adding more well, chaos. So would you say it's like trying to control the situation by, I don't know, creating chaos or trying to somehow put yourself in a position where you are not going to be vulnerable? Uh, even if that situation or the, the, that you're creating is a chaotic one. Um, In some ways, it's like I'd rather have the bad that I know right. than the bad that I don't know. The unknown is very frightening. Yes. Right. And you, you just pointed out something really valuable that there, if it, this isn't addressed, the lack of self-identity becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a gaping hole. Mm. And we as human beings... You know, once we're really comfortable in our values and our beliefs and who we are, we live out of that. And then we make interpersonal connecting from a very healthy standpoint of those values and beliefs. If we have an individual that is lacking in form, right, of who I am right. because I am bad and I'm not good enough, well, they still want to connect. They're human, right? right? right. But now they're coming out of a dysfunctional set of interpersonal connecting with other people and how they get that done is usually they start to manipulate to get people to meet their needs. Mm. They'll start moving into places of telling lies and dysfunctional behaviors to get their needs and wants met. They'll get other people to chat for them because they don't know how to be assertive within conversation. And it's very sad, right? right? Because yeah. they're not coming out of an authentic sense of self but they still want to connect. Oh, that's so deep, so, so profound. Can you hear that like explosion going off? That's my mind being blown. <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, I, I, I feel the same. But, and it's actually, as we're just sitting talking, I mean, it's not going to be part of our conversation, but there are realizations, connections, and things that I'm making for myself and for other situations that I am aware of or part of. It's interesting. Thank you both for that, because I think that the important part of this is that we can recognize the signs. Uh, but then what happens, uh, and I, I don't know if any of you will have the answer for this question, but 
uh, what can I do if I started noticing on my child or somebody else's child that there are some of these signs and some of these attitudes? How do I approach that? What can I do uh, to avoid that situation from escalating or perpetuating in the future? Signs if you... If you're, are you saying signs like if you think my child is, or your child is experiencing this and... Correct, yeah. But you aren't sure. Exactly. Right. This is pers- This is my, my thought on that, is that if you have a hunch of any of any sort, is that you can try to sit down and be able to have a conversation with your child, very simply, if somebody has touched you inappropriately. Secondary to that, I do think this is where therapy can help, that you have a therapist that's well comforted in knowing how to manage a little one, to be able to use art and play therapy, Mm -hmm. because they may not have the words to say, or they're feeling very shamed. Again, children and concrete thinking believe that a parent knows what's going on, even if they're not in the room with them. So for instance, if you're out of the room and your child's in the living room and the lamp breaks and you don't know it, Mm. the child in their concrete thinking is like, dad knows, mom knows. You can see it. So what do they go do to the lamp pieces? They They go hide hide them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. But then they're waiting. They're like, okay, right? Now imagine if this little one is, is with a perpetrator and mom and dad aren't there they think mom and dad know, right? Mm. Mom and dad come home from being out and this person leaves, nothing happens, nothing said, right? And now if that 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 person has began the coercion of saying, don't say anything, that right. is very frustrating for a little one. Yep. So they do have this belief that mom and dad know. So I do believe and have confidence if you find a therapist that's able to sit with a little one when they don't have the right words, they can work through the different types of therapies that is nonverbal to have a child. They can work things that art and play therapies are pretty powerful things with little ones to help them put words to things that can be very traumatizing. And in, in, in I do know from the play or reacting or react or re- reenacting through play is when you can observe, oh, that's not a really good thing. And that can begin a discussion or at least deeper digging. Absolutely. Absolutely. Please stay tuned and don't miss the next part of this conversation with Scott and Maria in Compassionate Conversations. Compassionate Conversations is brought to you in a partnership with United Way of Racine County. Thank you for your support. NAMI Racine County is a local affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Our vision is to create a compassionate community where all people affected by mental illness live healthy, fulfilling lives. Naman Rasinkani provides advocacy, education, support, and public awareness so that all individuals and families affected by mental illness can build better lives. Visit us at www.namirasinkani.org for more information on mental health and related activities.